0: The Swithin, Book 2, Episode 14 Welcome to The Swithin Hey there, folks. This is Scott Telleck, author of The and the series that retells the real legend of King Arthur and his buddies in a series of epic fantasy novels and in this podcast. We're going to continue listening to book two, The Sons of Constance, but just remember if you ever get tired of listening over several months, the entire book is available right now as an ebook and paperback over at Amazon and various other online retailers. And the audiobook will be available sometime in the course of human history over at Audible. And book three is actually going to be out very soon. If you don't mind reading on a Kindle or other electronic device, you can get that right now for a dollar. And it'll be three dollars after it is officially released in the middle of December. And you can keep up with all the shocking developments by finding The Swithin on Facebook, Twitter, and our website, theswithin.com. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N, or Scott Telek, T-E-L-E-K. Uh, Okay, so last week we talked about how there are things in the old legends that are inexplicable, but I leave them in because they give the whole thing texture and retain the strangeness of it, and that brought me to what's a little bit of a tricky topic, which is the limitations of being committed to staying faithful to the old legends. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast a while, you've heard me talk about how most of the King Arthur stuff we see doesn't actually follow the real legends very much because it's just so big and sprawling, and it just doesn't chop down into neat little stories. And because of this, you have things like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, which are clearly inspired by King Arthur, but they create their own new worlds and new characters so that they aren't tied down by the limitations of having to remain faithful to the source material, and they can kind of do whatever they want. So I'm going to talk about some of those limitations a bit, even though I don't really have a big point to make or some giant takeaway to get from it. With a series like this and a rule that I'm not allowed to change anything about the old legends, comes a lot of limitations. Mainly that I can't just throw in dragons or ice walkers or armies of the undead or giant eagles whenever things get a little boring. For example, the only dragons that appear in the entire Arthurian legend have already appeared earlier in this book. Otherwise, you might be surprised to learn there are no other dragons in the rest of the saga. And the dragons that are here don't attack and burn down any cities, and there are no women warriors and no women in charge of whole kingdoms, unless you count the Lady of the Lake, who presides over a whole matriarchal society. And in general, it can just never be as viscerally exciting as something more modern with more contemporary story beats. So I think to myself, well, you know, how can I compete with any of that? Because I just can't throw in stories that are more satisfying in a peak TV kind of way or a blockbuster way. So how can I compete? And I guess what I have on my side is that, for one, there's the authenticity. That what you're hearing is the real Arthurian legend from 800 or more years ago. And not something made up to give the people exactly what they want and sell the most books and calendars and lunchboxes. Secondly, I think what it has is that it's kind of weird and uncanny in a way. Modern stories are just a little afraid to be. So, like, you might have three knights follow a white stag into the forest where they encounter three maidens, one who's young and one who's middle-aged and one who's old, and then they separate and go with each of them, and they have these really bizarre adventures that don't really come to some huge ending where, you know, they foil the bank robber or whatever, but it's just super weird and evocative and mysterious in a way that only something from the Middle Ages can be. Um, and finally, what it has going for it is that it's a huge sprawling saga that's complete to the end right now with intricate and time-tested character arcs for everybody that are finished now. So I just finished book three and I started book four and it's fun because from that time on we're starting to introduce characters that are going to be with us through the rest of the saga and we're talking 22 novels left after book three. We're only in book two here. And they all have complex and intertwining character arcs that are all plotted out and laid out right now. So in terms of overall plot, there's not going to be any making up as we go along. And you're not going to get invested in this story and suddenly find out our characters are going into space or becoming secret agents or whatever because we've run out of story ideas. Like, for example, I'm not really a fan of the latest Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, and it's not at all because of the diversity, which I actually thought was great. It's because it doesn't follow the previous film, and it kind of revealed that they don't have a story to tell here. They're just making it up as they go along, which made me feel like, well, then why am I bothering to pay attention to this? I thought you guys had some story here, some big saga, but you know, I guess you're just winging it, so why am I bothering? to keep up with this so that won't happen with the swithin because our whole story is laid out to the end right now and the stuff going into these first parts is indeed leading up to stuff that happens later and if you stay with us through all the books you'll be amazed at what things from the first parts of the story end up showing up way 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 down the line Hmm. so that's it Yes, I don't have dragon attacks and magic happening every other second and, you know, ice zombies. But what I do have is that the story is intricate as fudge and complete with no making up as we go along. And it's weirder and more uncanny than anything today's best TV writers could come up with. And it's a real honest-to-goodness legendary epic saga, so I guess it has that on my side. All right, so let's get going with our story for today. Today we're going to catch a brief glimpse of Igraine, and I'll give you a clue that she won't be back here until the next book, where she'll have a very large role then, because she is going to turn out to be the mother of our little future King Arthur. All right, so let's get to it. Part 2, Chapter 25. Merlin waited on the roof of their cottage. It was about three hours after midnight, and from this place he had a lovely view down the valley whose rolling hills were lined with grass and trees, dotted here and again with exposed rocks. At the end of the valley was a waterfall that filled the air with a distant rushing sound and appeared a misty light blue in the cool moonlight that illuminated the scene. Merlin thought on what he was about to do with a leaden heart. His eyes had cast his vision deep into the future, and he had found the woman he sought. Without doubt, it was her, but he also saw how it would leave her, what the rest of her life would be like afterward, when she could never again be so innocent. Yet he could see no one else but her, for only she in all the land, with the depth of her wish to be good and remain virtuous, could create the person he needed. With a sigh, he rose to his feet, stepped down toward the edge of the roof, and, turning his head as he heard an owl's cry from the direction of the forest, stepped down into her chamber. She lay there, body entangled with dukes, her face pressed against the skin of his neck, a look of complete contentment on her face. It's true she was absolutely lovely, but even more so, and more overwhelmingly than he'd seen in his mind. Her skin was utterly unblemished and looked as soft and pure as cream, and he saw her breasts rise and fall silently with her quiet, even breath. They lay nude together. The sight of them together made him think on a symbolic painting meant to show the perfect example of man, rough and masculine, and woman, beautiful and strong, entangled together, complete and completing each other. Merlin found a chemise, the undergarment that hung closest to her body, lifted it quickly and tucked it into his robe. His feet stepped delicately around the sleeping forms of the lovers, then he moved off to find a seat against the wall, separated by the sleeping couple by only a hanging skein of veils and pelts. Merlin spent a moment thinking pensively, his eyes sunken and distant, then he touched one finger to his other palm, made a circular motion above with his fingers, and the woman awoke. She did not find anything amiss, nor did she feel anything but comfort and security, close there, pressed against the strong, firm body of the duke. She kissed him lightly twice on the neck. Then she turned her head to look about in the room, her face showing a mild curiosity, as though she'd heard something. The fire still burnt and filled the quiet room with a lovely flickering glow. She stepped to the window and looked down at the stone walls of the castle, all a cool gray-blue in the moonlight, set against the blackness of the sea just beyond. The night was quiet and filled with peace, save for the distant crashing of the waves on the rocks below, and her room with the duke felt absolutely safe and comfortable. Her head turned to the side suddenly, and she saw someone sitting there, perfectly still, against the wall. He was in a robe with a hood pulled up, and she could not see his face— Curious, not at all threatened, she went over and stood before him. She was still nude, her full breasts and lovely curves and dips shining beautifully in the flickering firelight, but she did not feel intruded upon or abashed, because the feeling of the moment was so calm. The man sat against the wall in peace and completely without an air of violence, and at the same time, she had the strange sense that he wasn't actually there at all, or if any of this were actually happening. If it was not a dream, it was something very much like it. The man raised his hand and offered his open palm in homage. "'Fairy grain,' he said. "'Blessed mother, I come to begin making penance "'for all that will befall you.' She smiled and cocked her head in curiosity rather than feel threatened, as the entire mood of the visit was one of wonder. "'What will befall me?' she asked. The man in the robe indicated four garlands of gold laid out next to where he was sat, "'with the most delicate fringe of golden threads, "'here and there enclosing tiny lustrous stones "'and richly colored shards of gems. accept these garlands as a small part of my offering,' he said. "'His fingers moved above the first. "'This one,' he said, "'will help your eldest daughter with her studies. "'The second will help your middle daughter bear many worthy sons.' "'He looked up at her.' This one, he said, indicating the third, will help your younger daughter in her practice of the healing arts, and this, largest one, he said, running his fingers over the most ornate of the garlands, is for you, and will strengthen your innate goodness and help you to remain virtuous. She leaned in and examined the mixture of gold and stones that made up of the garlands, and when she leaned back, the man was no longer there, because he was once more in Northumberland. We will not meet Ygrayne again in this book, but as we read on, we'll know that she's out there, living the last of her carefree days with a husband she loves truly, the Duke of Tintagel. Merlin returned home and hung Ygrayne's chemise in a small closet in his room, somewhere he was sure Blaise would not find it. He hung the garland below a sprig of wolfsbane mixed with roots of nightshade from which the human oils contained in the garment would be naturally repelled. These would, over the next few days, drip into a pan he placed below the chemise and be gathered in a small cup beneath the center of that. Over flame, Merlin would turn this dense, sticky fluid into a fine white powder, which he would then funnel into a small bottle of blue glass. Part 2 Chapter 26 Pendragon rode for many days until he came to the encampment where Uther and his men were chipping away at the remnants of the Saxons, where they dared emerge from the stronghold where Hanks had remained with them. When the brothers saw each other, Uther came running at once to embrace him, and Pendragon swung his leg over and slid down off his horse, throwing his arms open as he ran at his brother. Their chests met with a hearty thud as they held each other a great while. Pulling back, Uther said, Pendragon, you'll not believe what great things I have to tell you. Pendragon raised a hand. Don't tell me, he said, and I'll tell you things even more amazing and introduce you to someone who promises to give us great advantage of this war. But first, congratulations in ridding us of hankst. He gripped his brother's shoulders as Uther puffed up proudly. All of our efforts will be much easier now. The country's virtually ours, said Uther, still amazed. The Saxons are leaderless, but you'd not believe, Pendragon once more raised his hand. Don't, he said, but let us find somewhere to speak privately. They made a few more hellos and managed some business, then repaired to the royal pavilion at the center of the camp. Pendragon changed out of his traveling clothes and, once comfortable, Uther said, I'm dying to tell you my news. Whatever you have to tell me, let's have it. Pendragon smiled mischievously and almost found it hard to begin. The moment was too delicious. My news, he said, voice booming in excitement, is to tell you your news. He enjoyed the moment of his brother's confusion, then said, An old wretch appeared to you in the middle of the night at the camp, he said. He informed you that Hanks was coming just then to kill you and that you should arm and defend yourself or he would not be wearing armor. Uther was dumbfounded. "'How'd you know?' he asked at last. "'I never told anyone about the old man.' Pendragon laughed heartily. "'Because I've met the man who told you this. "'He's a great seer, perhaps the best that's ever lived.' "'And here he grabbed Uther by the shoulders "'and stared in delighted wonder at him. "'And he wants to be our friend "'and use his powers to offer us advantage. "'Great advantage,' he said. "'He'll help us drive out the Saxons completely "'and settle the wars over this land.' ''Who is he?'' asked Uther. ''Why does he want to help us?'' ''He wants to help us,'' said Pendragon. ''Well, primarily, because we're us.'' Uther laughed and spread his arms, hand pointing in to indicate himself. ''And we are, by all accounts, wondrous and formidable,'' he said. ''And in every shape and form, the better of every living man,'' continued Pendragon, eyes laughing. But also, he knows of our birthright, and he's keen to have Britain ruled by the British, which obviously, and here he once more indicated himself, his name is Merlin, and he's the son of a demon, from whence he gains his powers, which far exceed those of any man now living. Uther's face clouded. Can we trust someone born of the devil? Pendragon raised his finger. Yes, because he was turned to God by his mother, who had him baptized at the moment of his birth. Thus he retained the devil's advantages while also attaining the blessings and advantages of God. He works on earth to bring about the will of God, and brother, Pendragon turned to Uther and once more gripped his shoulders in both hands. He wants to help us. Uther blinked as the import of the word settled over his mind. You're saying he knows the will of God and wants to work the will of God, he said, staring back seriously into Pendragon's eyes. And to him, that means helping us, he said. Pendragon nodded, eyes wide with amazement and cheeks puffed up into an unstoppable grin, and he could only shrug and open his arms in a gesture of grateful incredulity, saying, yes, and once again, yes, he shook his head in wonderment, and the two brothers embraced each other. They held their large bodies close as the excitement, wonder, and thrill of a thousand different thoughts coursed through their heads. Having returned to Brittany, unsure of what they would face, most probably years of grinding war, they now faced the prospect of securing the reign much more quickly and having to move into the next phase, governing the stable country, much sooner than they expected, which was good except that they had planned for, and been trained mostly for, war, violent, bloody war, with stability a vague and illusory goal that they'd barely planned for at all. At last they pulled apart and gazed upon each other, dumbfounded in wonderment, Uther's eyes lingered on the crown atop his brother's head and thought, Excellent! Pendragon will receive invaluable advantages that will secure his place as king for several decades, and he, Uther, will gain all the advantages of being the brother of the king and second in command. You'll be unstoppable, said Uther. We, brother, said Pendragon. This old man who spoke to you, he said, Would you recognize him if you saw him again? Uther nodded with certainty. Of course, I could still see his face before me. "'Because, and you may know this as a fact, he'll speak to us eleven days from now,' said Pedragon. "'Let's do all we can to be ever together on that day until he comes, so I can see whether or not I'll recognize him.' They clasped their hands in agreement. "'Congratulations to us,' said Uther. "'We thought we'd face years of nothing but fighting. "'It still seemed almost too amazing to talk about.' With the knowledge and advantages this Merlin offers us, we can rule, finished Pendragon, instead of merely fighting for our rightful place. We can use that time to create the country we want, he paused, and which Merlin wants. Yes, said Uther, nodding his head in a goofy way. As long as we want what Merlin wants, he said jokingly, and they both laughed together, acknowledging the strangeness of the situation. Neither could think of anything else for the next few days, Merlin was stuck deep in their heads, like a song. Part 2, Chapter 27 Merlin and Blaze were involved in a game of chess. They peered over the board, eyes moving from piece to piece, plotting out the possible scenarios for each as both men stroked their gray beards. Mermis had promised not to use his knowledge of the future to influence the game, which was the only condition under which Blaze would consent to play. No, Merlin assured him, he wanted to test and train his own strategic abilities and skills of guessing potential future outcomes without resorting to his second sight, although when he found himself cornered, it was very difficult not to give the future just the tiniest once over. Merlin had showed Blaze the middle-aged hermit appearance and said it would become known as his primary appearance from that time, and this was how they should know him. That was the guise in which he sat with Blaze just then. Blaze studied the layout of the pieces. How are you finding the brothers, he asked. Merlin sighed. They're quite, he thought, then said, sweet. Pendragon has great nobility in him and is genuine in his wish to help his people, so that's excellent, and I think might help him in making great strides for the country before Arthur comes. He reached forward and his hand covered a rook, but he chose not to move it. Uther, he said... "'Uther's a robust warrior and yearns with great heart to be a good and respected leader, "'but thinks so little of himself that he's afraid he doesn't have it in him. "'Honestly, they're both quite young and changeable, and I still have much to learn about them.' "'Blaze's eyes stayed on the board. "'But if you can see the future,' he said, "'and let his upturned palms complete the sentence for him. "'I know,' sighed Merlin, "'but it's still quite vague. "'The future's not like the past. "'It's undecided and uncertain.' And unfocused. And while I can sometimes see an event quite strongly, the path to get to that event is often obscure. He reached out and, after all that deliberation, moved upon one space. I can move things around, and sometimes the path reveals itself quite clearly. And sometimes people, like these brothers and their friends, Do unforeseen things that alter my plans, or they don't take my advice, he said. Or they think that, yes, I have access to all the knowledge that has ever existed in the world, but they're smart, too, and they want to make their own decisions, Merlin sat back in his chair, and that alters the future. You know how changeable people can be. Blaze merely grunted. He leaned forward and was closely examining the board. These brothers are particularly headstrong, said Merlin. Perhaps they have too much faith in the claim of their birthright. Well, honestly, I need to know them better, and I'll need to know that they believe in me absolutely, which they will need to do. This is the point of all this appearing in this, guys, and that, that they come to believe in me completely, even more than their own senses, Blaze looked up momentarily, by coming to them as all sorts of different people. Not just that, but people who predict things and other people who confirm those predictions, and with these brothers who are very confident in themselves. At this stage, overconfident. I'll need to tell them a great deal of what they most want to hear, for that most wins favor with boys of this type. And with that in mind, Merlin reached behind him and brought forward a piece of parchment, a pen, and a vial of ink. I will have you write a letter for me, if you don't mind. Uther has his mind very much on a lady friend of his, and if a guy can bring him a letter from her, telling him what would make him happiest to hear, then he would have great trust in me. Blaze sat back. "'You want me to write a letter from a young woman?' Merlin nodded. "'I'll dictate.' Blaze pointed a finger at the young wizard. "'You're not involving me in any deceit of which I would disapprove, are you?' Merlin threw his outstretched hand innocently over his heart. "'How can you imagine such a thing?' asked the seer. "'It's only positive tidings for the young man, who's actually quite a romantic, "'although he possesses the technique of a bore. "'It would make him positively disposed toward me, "'which will make it easier for him to accept me as a friend.' "'Blaze still peered at him suspiciously. "'So that I may better guide them in drawing our country toward God,' said Merlin. "'Blaze nodded, then reached out, and, with a swift move of his bishop, "'eliminated the pawn that Merlin had just brought forward. "'Okay,' he said. "'Let us do it now.' "'Merlin stared at the board. "'That pawn was the beginning of a long series of moves he'd planned.' "'It's not fair,' he said. "'How is that?' Blaze asked. "'I have natural gifts,' said Merlin. "'They were not my asking, yet I'm punished for it in play,' Blaze rolled his eyes. "'You're saying it's not fair, that you aren't allowed to use your unfair advantage,' he said. "'Let us begin this letter,' said Merlin, while we're at this natural pause in play.' Blaze took up his pen and paper and set down the words as Merlin said them, which we'll spare you now as you're to hear them later. And only once did Blaze put down his pen and look askance at Merlin. He should ignore the will of her husband and ravish her in private, asked Blaze. Merlin shrugged. These are young people, he said. They, well, you know what gets these young bucks going today. Blaze went back to his writing. No, I certainly do not, he grumbled. Soon enough the letter was finished, and while the ink was still wet, Merlin removed a small glass vial from his robe, dumped out a white powder onto his palm, and blew it onto the letter, where it sent a pale cloud billowing across the table. "'What's that?' asked Blaze. "'Just a perfume of sorts,' said Merlin. "'It doesn't smell very flowery," said Blaze. I don't pretend to know what these young kids might like, said Merlin, taking up the letter and tucking it away. Now, he said, regarding the chessboard once more, shall we finish this ludicrous game you've involved me in? That's it for today. Join us next week as the story continues. If you get tired of listening over the course of several months, the full ebook and paperback of this novel is available over at Amazon and most other online retailers. You can also order Book 3, The Void Place, which takes us up to the birth of Arthur, our future king. The full audiobook will also be available and might be, by the time you listen to this, over at audible.com, where you can also find the first book. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N, or Scott Telek, T-E-L-E-K. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit the Swithin website at theswithin.com, T-H-E-S-W-I-T-H-E-N.com, where you can also sign up for email updates. And if you like this podcast and this story, please, please tell a friend or a relative or leave a comment on social media or whatever works best for you. But any recommendations you make to anyone else would be very much appreciated. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe or leave a comment or what have you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.